Well, we're finally at the end of our long study on worship. (coughs) Today, hopefully, is the last session in what's been a 22-part series, thank you, on biblical and reformed worship. And today, we are talking specifically about music in corporate worship. We've built up to this for so many weeks, so everything we're going to talk about today, obviously, is, has been built upon what we've already looked at in the Word. Uh, but kind of to recap a little bit and to prepare us for where we're going, last week we looked at the purpose and definition of music in corporate worship. Why do we sing when we gather? That's what we considered last week. And today we're going to talk about the style, particularly. In the manner of worship. So what style of music is, uh, should uh, characterize our worship music? So again, to, to recap a little bit, music in corporate worship is for the purpose of worshiping God. We talked about how it's not primarily to be a means for evangelism or primarily to be a means for us um, to feel connected to God or to have an experience but it's for the purpose of worshiping God. And so we must evaluate music uh, according to whether it's pleasing to God. That's the trick, right? We also consider that music in corporate worship is for the purpose of proclaiming truth. That should be a given, right? Our question when we come to worship music should be first and foremost... Is this song true? And not only is it true, but does it effectively communicate biblical truth? Does it communicate gospel truth? Not just generic truths, but gospel truth. And then last week we also considered how I made the argument that our worship music ought to follow the pattern that we see in the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms are widely recognized as the inspired hymn book. It's the hymnal that God has given us, inspired inspired by Him. It's kind of like the Lord's prayers, to be a model for our prayers. The prayers in Scripture are to be models for how we ought to learn how to pray. Well, last week we considered that the Psalms ought to be a model for how we ought to sing. And what we see in the Psalms is kind of... Broadly, three categories. We see psalms of prayer, creating me a clean heart, O God. We see songs of praise, right, proclaiming His glory and His acts of creation. And we see songs of proclamation, which is kind of, you know, reminding fellow people of God um, of who God is and what He's done and to put your trust in Him. And uh, finally, I almost skipped this. Music in corporate worship must be suitable for corporate participation. It's not our own private concert. It is singing with the people of God. All right, so today I want to look at basically style. Does it matter? Do scriptures govern it? Do the scriptures govern it? Is it only a matter of personal or cultural preference? That's what I want to consider this morning. 
And the big picture here is, I'm going to argue that style does matter. Though surprisingly, I'm going to say, it's not ultimate. <coughs> I mean, we've we got to be honest in the respect that there are some cultural aspects that come into play regarding styles of music. Each culture is going to look differently, and I think that's a good thing. There's diversity in the body of Christ. There's diversity in the sense that it reflects, uh, the worship of God's people should reflect um, the fact that God calls and saves those from every tribe and nation and tongue and nationality. But at the same time, even though there are cultural aspects, again, I'm going to say that style does matter. It doesn't mean that everything is okay and that everything can follow under that banner of it's just cultural. I'm going to argue that there are some biblical principles that trump, excuse my use of the word there, that's, <laughs> never know how to take that nowadays, right? There are biblical principles that trump cultural aspects. Repeatedly, we find that in Scripture, culture is not neutral. It doesn't mean it's all evil, but it's not neutral. The Bible frequently calls us to be conformed to its patterns instead of the world's patterns, instead of cultural patterns, <clears throat> to let Scripture shape our uh, cultivation of culture. Because what comes natural to us is worldliness, because we're fallen and we're sinful. And so that's kind of the big picture. And what I'm going to do is argue from the lesser to the greater. And I'm really, really, really just scratching the surface. But I heard enough from you guys about being 22 weeks long. So we're going to end it today. I do want to push through some stuff and leave 10 or 15 minutes for questions and discussion. Because I'm sure there's going to be a good bit. But I'm going to argue from the lesser to the greater here. I want to argue first that style is not neutral. Kind of a general argument for that. And then I want to uh, look at some basic biblical uh, principles of wisdom regarding what is proper and improper in worship. And then thirdly, I want to look at these, uh, I want to apply these biblical principles to worship music specifically and see what do the scriptures say about style. All right? Lesser to the greater. So, small argument, bigger argument. So, initially, what I want to argue is hopefully this is evident to everyone. Style is not neutral. Style of music is not neutral. In our day, we kind of default that newer is always better, no matter what that is. That's really the, the rallying cry of this generation. Technology, psychology, science, theology, newer is always better. That is our default mode. And if you think that you're not affected by that, then... You're wrong. <laughs> We're all affected by that. Because of the advances in science, because of the advances in technology that we've made in our day, we naturally assume that newer is better. And so we can think that newer style is better as well. It's newer style of music. But the truth is, much of today is superficial and passing. And I just want to make one small argument here. I don't want to make anyone mad. But does anyone actually believe 
that shine Jesus shine will be around 500 years from now, like the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you compare the hymns to each other, there is a depth of truth in Luther's hymn here that so much of what is popular today doesn't even compare. It's not even in the same league. It's not even the same ball field. So much of worship music today is superficial and shallow. And it will not stand the passage of time. And it's a reflection of the fact that style, the style of today's music, lends to that superficiality. Now, I know this is more of an argument towards content rather than style, but I just want to put it out there just for, for you know, I, so you can keep it in mind that, that um, newer is not always better, not only in content, but also I'm going to make the argument in style as well. Newer is not always better. But the point, the bigger point I want to make is that the medium, the way of communicating, cannot be separated from the message. The medium is a message. It's not just a Christian argument. There's a great book, one of my favorite books, called um, by Neil Postman, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, Neil Postman was a secular Jew, uh, and the, the thesis of the book is essentially that um, we're heading, America, Westerners are heading towards a new dark age because of the mediums of our media. Our media has become all visual and emotional and superficial rather than logical. Um, the we were a nation formed around the written word, and now we are becoming a nation formed around the image. And, of course, he was writing in, writing in the 80s when television was at its boom. Now we have the Internet. It opens up a whole new world of that. There is more word-centered stuff with the Internet, but the, the visual is still continuing on, so maybe it's not quite as bad as he in, envisioned. But the reason I bring that up is because this is not just a Christian argument. The medium, the method of some, the way in which you communicate something is related and cannot be separated to the message that you're trying to communicate. Um, we see this in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about the divisions in the church. He's talking about how many of you wise and noblemen have God saved? None of you, actually. You're weak. You're fallible in the world's eyes. But God has called you. And his point here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as he builds up to this, he reminds them, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, there's the method, excuse me, the medium and the message. The medium, it didn't come with lofty speech, which is popular in that day. Uh, rhetoric, oratory, stand up and give this beautiful lecture. Or, or wisdom of the world. He came preaching Christ and Him crucified. My speech and my message, medium and message, 
were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The point is, I don't want you to come to Christ because I was a great speaker, because I came with lofty speech, because I came in this beautiful words of wisdom and oratory. I want you to rest in the power of God. Your faith is to be in the power of God. The point is, that I'm making an implication of this, is that the medium is the message. Paul recognized that the message of the cross cannot be separated from the way in which he communicated it. And he builds up to this in 1 Corinthians 1.21. Excuse me. This is based upon what he just said in 1 Corinthians 1.21. It is both the message as well as the method preaching that Paul calls foolishness. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believed. The grammar here makes it clear that the folly refers not only to the message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but the method as well. It's foolish to preach. And the message is foolish as well. But they coincide with one another. So, from that implication, we can see that particularly when it comes to the message of the cross, the way in which we communicate it is not neutral. There is an inconsistency that exists between a bloody cross and the wisdom of the world and how it conveys messages. This is my argument. Singing of the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the beauty of the cross, in ways that we sing of the love, pleasure, and joys of the world will inherently undermine the message. Now, I know that's controversial. <laughs> I know you're not all going to agree with that. But that's, that's my argument under this point. <clears throat> we ought to sing of these things in a way that is different in which we sing of these things. If we listen to a song that speaks of a lover's delight in their lover, their partner, and we hear a song speaking of a Christian's love for the Lord, there ought to be a little bit of difference there. Not always, but generally speaking. And I'm going to build on this some more. So, But that's the basic kind of just overview of medium is the message. Again, I'm going to come back to that. But let's look at some basic principles for living. Excuse me, basic principles of wisdom here regarding music. This raises a question. Does the Bible speak on appropriate style? All right, so we get it. Medium is a message. We've got to be careful in how we communicate the message of the cross so as not to put it in worldly ornaments, right? Um, God didn't reveal the gospel through Steven Spielberg's special effects. Um, 
he reveals the gospel and he saves sinners through the foolishness in the eyes of the world of a preacher preaching the gospel. That's how he um, invades this world with the good news of Christ. So how does that relate to music? Does the Bible speak on it? Well, some basic principles of wisdom when we talk about what's appropriate in worship. And two things here. Wisdom and general principles and then specific attitudes of worship in Scripture. That's where I'm going. So the first is, I do want to make the argument that the apostles, when instructing the church, when writing to the church, they frequently appeal to what is fitting, to what is suitable, what is proper, in the light of general principles of Scripture. I'm going to move quickly here. Titus 2.1, he tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Accords means what is fitting, what is suitable, what is, what is proper. He's saying, Titus, you can figure this out, okay? Teach what fits and suits sound doctrine. That means make application in life that accords with the truths of Scripture because Scripture doesn't speak to every issue specifically. Another example, 1 Corinthians 11, talking about head coverings. There's a controversial subject, right? Judge for yourselves. This is his conclusion when he talks about head coverings for women in worship. Is it proper, there's that word again, for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, is it a disgrace for him? Disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? I'm not going to jump into this subject, but I do want to make the argument. I believe what Paul is saying here is, regarding head coverings, he appeals to what is fitting and proper in light of that culture. In that culture, it was a sign of a prostitute or an available woman to have your head uncovered. It's like not wearing a wedding ring. And there's a lot of different things going on there. No, I do not believe that mandates that women ought to wear head coverings. No. But he says, in light of what's going on in your culture, you need to judge for yourselves what is proper. Use some wisdom here. It's not an indifferent matter. It's not like you can say, oh, whether you wear a head covering or not, it doesn't matter. He's saying, no, this is important, actually. And that's why he goes on at the end of this chapter to say, if you disregard this, if you disregard... Um, uh, all right, I don't want to misquote that. Hold on. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about divisiveness. That's what he says, yeah. Verse 16, so this is into verse 14, but if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You're saying, look, you want to be contentious over this? You want to stick to your right and think that you can make this decision for yourself? No, you have a God-given responsibility to judge for yourselves what is proper. That's what he's saying. It's not a matter of indifference. You are to make a wise decision. So again, my argument, what's proper in worship? It's our responsibility to think carefully about that. 
Another example, probably a better example. 1 Timothy 2. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. It feels like I'm harping on the women here. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not intending to. <laughs> the basic question, though, is it a sin to wear braided hair, gold, or pearls to worship? Absolutely not. It's like it's not a sin to wear jeans to, to worship. <laughs> no, it's not a sin. And if you really want to press it, you can say, like, just like you could say, oh, it doesn't matter what style you sing at. You could say, it doesn't matter what you wear to worship. That's not, God cares about the heart. God doesn't give us specific instructions on that. No, but it can be a sin. Paul appeals to what? The same word that he used in Titus and 1 Corinthians. To what is proper? What is proper? Judge for yourself. Look at principles of worship, principles of wisdom, and decide what is fitting to wear. What is appropriate? What is suitable? It's like, you know, we wouldn't come to church dressed in our bathing suit. We can worship at home in our bathing suit or in our underwear, right? But coming to church like that, you're bordering on sin. Could be, if it's improper, if it's provocative, if it's drawing attention to yourself, if it's enticing lust, if it's disrespectful. What I'm saying is here, what applies to clothes Head coverings and application applies to style as well. There is style that is improper and inappropriate and not suitable for corporate worship. Yes, I realize that's subjective, all right? We're going to talk about that. But that's kind of the, the basic point here. So we're not to ask what style of music is permissible. We are to ask what is best, what is proper, what is appropriate. And we should ask that regarding anything in worship. How we dress, the decorations of the building, all right? We don't have a golden pulpit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, Rome does, right? Roman Catholics. But we should ask this question regarding everything. Our attitudes, our, our manner of conduct. Yes, it can cross the line. You know, I mean, my, my dad growing up, he would never let me wear a hat in the building, in the church building. All right, he would never let me run in the hallways. Right? That's probably bad, Riley. <laughs> um, we can take this too far. Uh, what, you know, what is worship and what isn't? What is just being in the building and what is actually. But our manner of conduct, the way we dress. We were to ask these things. As Paul says, all things are lawful. Every style might be lawful. But not all things are profitable. Not all things build up. That's the point I want to make on this second point. All right, third and lastly, we're almost to questions. 
how should we apply this to music? All right. I want to ask you, what is the fundamental attitude or demeanor of worship? If I were to ask you that off the top of your head, just how would you respond? Gracie. Humility. Humility. That's very, very good. Anybody want to argue with that, Josh? Reverence. Reverence. You guys stole my first two points. <laughs> what about joy. Celebration. I'm heading towards humility and reverence, but you just... I mean, there's a lot more than one. <laughs> Casualness. Is this a fundamental demeanor of worship? Indifference? It's just part of a thing that we do. I believe Scripture is clear. The fundamental agreement of worship, the central attitude, uh, demeanor, sorry about that typo there, is humility. (laughs) The central attitude, the central demeanor, is humility and reverence. That's what worship is all about. Um, where's joy in all that? Well, we can talk about that. But biblical joy is not the world's joy. Last night, uh, me and my family in Hannah Burton watched the Georgia Bulldogs beat the Fighting Irish. It was beautiful. There was a lot of joy in the household. There was some screaming on my part, maybe. Some cheering, some dancing, some celebrating. But God forbid that I worship God the same way that I celebrate over a dumb, meaningless football game. How shameful is it to act like that in corporate worship when you act like that in the context of a game? It's not the same. Joy, biblical joy, is not worldly joy. I do want to make the point that this is not just found in traditional worship styles. All right? Humility and reverence. A service where everyone is as stoic as they are at a funeral can be highly irreverent. I've been to Episcopal churches before where the content is great. They read from the Book of Common Worship and it's good stuff. It's Puritan stuff. But it is gospelless. It's dead. It's powerless. Because they don't care. It's just tradition. And it's just going through the motions. So traditional can be just as irreverent as the rock band and the fog machine. So, where do we see this in Scripture? Ah, okay. Is that just your opinion? Humility and reverence? Well, think of it this way. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. The opening of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed means treat as holy, treat as rever- with reverence. It's consecrated. It's the opening prayer. Lord, you are to be reverenced as our Father. And singing is a form of prayer. We are to sing with reverence. That is the central thread that trumps every other 
joy and rejoicing and happiness and everything else that trumps other, even other good biblical attitudes. Peace, love, reverence should trump everything. In the early, uh, so we see it there. We see it also in the early church in Acts. The fundamental aspect of the church, if you read those early days, was they gathered in fear and trembling. Right? Not in a frightening sense, but they were solemn gatherings. And they were sincere, partly because they were under terrible persecution. In our day, we don't have anything to fear, so it's easy to let that slide. Where is this in Scripture? Thirdly, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's kind of a central aspect of the Christian life. It is a central attitude for the entire Christian life. How much more so in the context of corporate worship, where God is present in a special way, and as I've argued these last 21 weeks, there's nothing more central to our Christian lives than corporate worship. Our salvation, working out our salvation, happens in the context of corporate worship more than anything else. More than anywhere else. Worship is the most, most important thing you can do as a Christian. So we see it there as well. Another place we see it. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. All right, He's talking about this whole church comes together and there's this ecstatic speaking in tongues. And he says, if outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will say, you're out of your mind. But if all prophesy, right, this is talking about content that's logical, they can understand, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. Part of why ecstatic speaking in tongues was sinful was because it was irreverent. It's a bunch of people doing stuff that doesn't reflect order. It doesn't reflect what is proper. And it's going to lead people to say, they're out of their minds. The fundamental attitude that Paul wants the Corinthians to cultivate is one of solemnity. Uh, solemnity. Come on. <laughs> Solemnity. There we go. Conviction of sin. Which comes from reverence and seriousness. Lowness. Humility. He's falling on his face. Not because they're so joyful. Who? this is really a party. God must really be among you. No, it's because, oh my goodness. Convicted. These people love the Lord. And finally, because it's commanded. The end of his long exhortation towards the end of the entire book, the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews says, let us, in light of all these things, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire.
his closing exhortation is to remind us who God is. He's a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. It's echoing Psalm 2, which we'll look at tonight in our prayer meeting. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, for his wrath is quickly kindled. We have a casual approach to Jesus in our culture, but the scriptures remind us this is not to be trifled with. In light of God as a consuming fire, like burning with rage, yes, there's love in Christ, but that's his nature is to break out in fire and consume the unbeliever, the sinner, the unrepentant. Our worship should be in reverence and awe, not casual and frivolous, not celebratory. Again, though true joy is to be present, it's a, it's a joy. Um, let's see if I put this. No. It's a joy, like think of the joy, the difference between um, celebrating a, a player celebrating a touchdown on the field or uh, the joy and celebration that happens at the awards banquet at the end of the year. And he walks up to the stage and he's got a smile on his face, but he's got tears in his eyes. And he's thinking, thanking his mom, and he's thanking his high school coach, and he's thanking the people that thanking the people that supported him. It's true joy, but it's not a touchdown dance. True joy is something that's deep, and it is perfectly compatible with reverence. And true joy without reverence is worldly joy. Our worship should be humble, reverent, and sincere in light of who God is. All right, so we've got 10 minutes for questions. Um, conclusion, style's not neutral. We can't separate the medium from the message. So we ought to use careful thought and wisdom as to what is proper, what best conveys the message. We ought to use, uh, be careful uh, to choose what is proper uh, proper in regards to cultivating a heart attitude of sincerity, of reverence, of humility, of devotion. What helps us think greater thoughts of God and lesser thoughts about ourselves? That should be our purpose in choosing style of music. And I've made this argument before, but there is a reason why advertising jingles are the best way to market products. And nursery rhymes appeal to children. And hard rock music raises our adrenaline. Mosh pits and, you know, and all that stuff. And other forms of music. There's a reason why other just forms can lead to pride and self-glorification. Talking just about style here. There's a reason for this. All styles have the potential to lead us astray in various areas. But we must choose, and, and that, that goes for traditional style as well. Don't get me wrong. But we must choose that which best cultivates or will most likely lead to a cultivation of the biblical heart of worship. That's what I'm saying. So, <coughs> just to conclude here, and we'll take some questions. What about specific instruments? No, there's not one instrument that's sinful and the others aren't. But the same principles apply. Let's use care. Let's use 
wisdom. What about raising hands, clapping, and swaying? Um, you know, in the Psalms and even in the New Testament, we see raising hands. For example, we see it in 1 Timothy 2. I desire that every man raise hands in prayer, Paul says. Um, that's in the context of corporate worship. What does that mean? Well, I, I believe that what he means is everybody raise their hands. And I would be fine with that if everybody raised their hands. But I think we ought to be careful by raising our hands and drawing attention to ourselves or to the exclusion of our neighbor. Um, remember, corporate worship is the goal here. Uh, I remember I was at a conference last year, and they had some pretty rocking music going. It was a great conference, CCEF. But they had, in this arena, they had three big sections of people. And the band started going, and I guess it was this lady's favorite song, but she walked into the middle of this giant aisle, like this where main people walk to get to your seats. She fell on her knees, and she was on her face in the middle of the floor, and then she was doing all this. And I, I'm not, you know, in any sense trying to, to judge her, but it, I thought it was really highly inappropriate. She was like in the way of people, and she was like out on the island, just everybody could see her. It was a very kind of ostentatious display. It's kind of like wearing gold or <laughs> braided hair or pearls in a way to show off your wealth. It's showing off my devotion. And we ought to be careful. I'm not saying that, you know, we ought, we ought to show grace, but I'm, I'm saying we ought to be careful as well. These same principles apply to these things as well. Is it true? Is it corporate? Is it uh, for the building up of the church? Is it reverent? All right. I really did give you guys a, a, a very, very brief overview. Um, so I know there's a lot of unanswered issues. What uh, questions can I answer for you guys? And again, my overall argument, yes, there is some subjectivity involved. There is some cultural connotations involved in choosing style, but there are biblical principles as well. Questions or comments or thoughts? Gracie. I think that those types of psalms and even our own modeling of them are reverent and um, are appropriate. Um, Traditionally, the church has had a place for lament. But you're right. In our culture, everything is awesome. That's our culture. It's our church culture. Everything is awesome. Everything's beautiful. Just... It doesn't have a place for lament. And part of that is because we don't suffer as Christians. Um, I definitely think it's appropriate and it's fitting um, and it's reverent. And there's a place for it. 
and we ought to do more to cultivate it. Um, that reminds me, though, of another point, though. I thought you were going to say it first. We've seen the Psalms, loud clanging cymbals and rejoicing and trumpets and all that stuff, and people use that for justification for worship. Um, well, we also see in the Psalms, we see sacrifices. <laughs> we see burning incense. We see slaying of animals. Um, there are aspects of the Mosaic Covenant in the Psalms that do not carry over into the New Testament. And one of that is ostentatious display because they were singing of war. They were drumming up war to slay the enemies and of God's visible power. We don't have that in our day and age. And so I believe it's not a one-to-one correlation to say just because it appears in, an instrument appears in the Psalms means that we should worship in the very same way. There's a spiritual worship in the New Testament. It's not visual. It was the opposite back then. Grace. Yeah, I, I, don't, I want to stop short from saying that it's improper. Mm-hmm. I just want to simply say that we ought to use care so as to not draw attention to ourselves. And we ought to use care to realize that we're coming together not as an individual worshiping, but as a corporate body. So falling on our knees and everything at home, I think, is more than appropriate. Um, and if you've never done that, I would question your devotion, <laughs> right? Um, if you're not uh, in your own private worship, uh, have worshipped in that way. But in the context of corporate worship, I think we ought to be careful. So I don't want to say that it's wrong. I don't, I, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that it's sinful. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And it should be legitimately considered, absolutely. I'm, I, again, my, my basic thing is, is uh, just use care. Um, just like, again, you know, clothes and how we dress and everything. Just you know, wisdom and care. Um, but I, I definitely see your point there. Appreciate you bringing it up. Kyle? Um, so, supposing that uh, we had a visitor... Um, 
generally practiced uh, different worship styles. Do you think that um, it might cause problems for the church for uh, divisions of, uh, of otherwise? Uh, uh, because you do say it's a it's a corporate thing. Um, you know, if we had say some African American uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ come here, they would find it very hard to worship here in in a way that. Uh, they're comfortable with and in the way that they can bring glory to God uh, the best. And similarly, if we went over to um, an African-American church, we would find it difficult for us. Yeah. Um, but doesn't that cause sort of uh, problems? Because there's a lot that we can learn uh, from them and that uh, hopefully they can learn from us. Um, but because we're, we have this sort of style problem, yeah. there's a bit of Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, I think that, um, I, again, I said earlier, I think the, the diversity of worship is a beautiful thing. Um, and then when we do go, uh, like I'm sure in Mozambique, they, they worship a whole lot differently. Without a doubt, I think that we ought to appreciate that and that our worship should reflect the type of culture that we're in to some extent. I'm just arguing that even... Um, that, that, that there's still principles that apply that govern different cultural expressions of worship as well. And that um, oftentimes we neglect those because we think, oh, it's just a great thing that other cultures worship differently, and so we look at it uncritically. But we ought to use care and concern. So I guess speaking to your question, though, of what, what you know, division in the church, um, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, we can't reflect in our worship um, all the different cultures in the world and any potential visitor that might come in. Uh, I think that their perspective ought to be just like our perspective ought to be when we go to an African-American church should be one of um, care and wisdom and thought before we judge them. (laughs) And... um, Long-suffering towards them, and um, think the best of them in their worship, even though we might disagree a little bit with how exactly this, that they, they do that. Does that answer your question? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, there's, it's, yeah it's, it's hard to deal with when visitors come in and, and what to do then, but definitely the church should reflect its, its own culture in some respect. Nathan? straightforward music that says clearly what it's trying to say is a very like what the language that we speak is much more clear so we know yeah. Like yeah and part of that is because we're a generation that <laughs> uh, as I said earlier has amused ourselves to death and we don't have the depth of um, understanding around the written word that these older hymns did and which is one reason why they've lasted so long as well. I think in some respect, too, there ought to be... I, I definitely agree with you. I'm not disagreeing with you. I think, but on the other hand, we also ought to strive to cultivate an understanding of those things. And part of our hymnody is to teach people to appreciate 
good theological hymns and that the church should have its own kind of genre, in a sense, of, of worship music uh, that's uniquely consecrated and set apart and it's, you know, revolves around the gospel. But no, I, I, hear, I hear you, absolutely, um, particularly in regards to the hymns. You could say, like, I mean, some people might think that you should say more of the Yeah, but again, then again, I would default back to the Psalms, and what do we see in the Psalms? Um, we do see some variety. We see some very simple stuff, but most of them are very complex. Um, and if you, you see that even more so if you, uh, if you look at it in the Hebrew <laughs> and Hebrew poetry, it is incredibly complex what they're saying and how they're saying it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a place for it. Trent. Uh, one comment, or going off what Nathan said about um, having more, or having trouble like really comprehending and understanding what everything it can say in the first time through. I think that really just gives an opportunity to revisit those things too. Like, like that's why we've lasted so long is because we don't, that we don't like just consume a song and learn everything it has to say within two weeks of of, of singing it. Yeah. Absolutely, and it goes back to what I argued last week. We sing partly because we want to learn and believe what those hymns talk about, and that singing it works it into our hearts. Um, and the deeper you go, the deeper it's going to work into your heart, and the more fruit it's going to bear. So, we gotta uh, we gotta close. Um, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, talk to me during the week. Send me the email. I'd love to talk to you more about this, or point you to some resources if you want to study it more. Um, but let's, uh, let's close in prayer.